So, um, today we are going to continue. Actually, actually, we're in the book of Ruth, but not yet. Because Ruth begins with, in the days of the judges. So, we are going to do a short overview of the book of Judges. And then we're going to spend some more time in the book of Ruth. Okay? Now, um, in the last 10 years, if you pay attention to what goes on in the church world, there's been a multitude of large churches where the pastors have self-destructed and the churches have imploded. Some of you are from Chicagoland churches that have gone through massive implosions. The number one podcast in Christendom these days is produced by Christianity Today. Um, it, the title is The Rise and Fall of, and it names the church. I'm not, that, my goal is not to pick on any particular church, but it's The Rise and Fall of, and it names a particular church. And it tells the story of, and it's several, several in, uh, individual uh, hours telling the story of the amazing rise of a particular church. It went from 200 to several thousand to several campuses, and then it almost overnight collapsed. Now, some of the churches are falling due to uh, abusive leadership. You know, basically, as, as a friend of mine said, that pastor's like Hitler in tight pants, okay? Um, <laughs> don't think of that image too long. Um, so there's abusive leadership. Some cases, there's sexual immorality. Um, throw in social media and the internet and how everything can just kind of immediately be known and we have this phenomenon of falling churches now why are so many falling now the easy thing to do would be to write it all off and say it's all fake um, all the leaders were wolves all the sheep were mindless deceived sheep but the problem is some of you were actually saved and discipled and you grew in these churches. So I don't think it's as easy as saying, oh, all those people out there. Right? I think God actually had his hand in a lot of these churches. So what are we to do? How, do we, how are we to evaluate that? And that brings us to, to our study today. I think a more nuanced way to evaluate the churches is to look at them in light of the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, God's Holy Spirit actually comes upon very sinful people, sinful judges, and those sinful judges are used to save other sinful people, physically save them. But God is really involved. In fact, if you look... At uh, 
throughout the book of Judges. The first judge is Othaniel, and it says the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And then when it comes to Gideon, it says the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Japheth. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, referring to Samson. So God's involved. This isn't just a human activity going on in the book of Judges. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and uses them to save people. But here's the key. I think the Holy Spirit comes upon them outwardly, but their hearts were never transformed inwardly. And I'm not even making a statement or a judgment about their salvation. Okay? Who, who knows? Okay? But there was never a deep inner transformation. Now, in the case of one particular judge, and we're going to look at Gideon today, we're going to see him go from fearful to actually worshipful, and then like virtually seconds later, go to awful. Here's the, the rise and fall of Gideon. Okay? Now, the pattern in the book of Judges is it's, it's just this downward spiral. The people sin, they commit idolatry. God then allows the neighboring pagans to oppress them. They repent, at least they cry. God raises up a deliverer, a judge, and they're delivered and they fall back into a peaceful lifestyle and fall right back into sin. And the spiral goes down and down and down. Um, so, so the people go from bad to worse. Now, the judges, though, that get raised up, and this is a, uh, an illustration from the Bible Project. Uh, by the way, the Bible Project... Uh, has taken every book of the Bible and they've drawn a map um, that tells the storyline and little videos that go along with it. But here, here basically is the, the Bible Project's map of the book of Judges. There are those judges who are pretty good at the beginning, Othaniel, Ehud, Deborah. Then it gets a little worse. They go to Okay, that's Gideon. We're going to look at him today. Then Jephthah, he's bad. He actually ends up sacrificing his own daughter at the end of that story. And then to worse, Samson, uh, a total womanizer and just a brutal man. All right? Now, we're going to zero in on Gideon, but realize the, the point of the whole story of Judges is everybody did what was right in their own eyes which is very similar to today. And when that happens, we go from bad to worse and we spiral down. The people spiral down and even the leaders spiral down. So let's take a look at Mr. Gideon. Okay, He's, And the outline is this. We're going to see him go from fearful to worshipful uh, to awful. So it begins with this. In Judges 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So they committed idolatry again. In fact, um, the, the local idol in Gideon's neighborhood was in his dad's backyard. 
Alright, so they're farmers, and they have an idol of Baal and Ashtaroth in their own backyard. And um, Gideon is just this nobody farmer. God has allowed the Midianites, so uh, Gideon lives up in the northern part of Israel. You see where all the arrows are pointing. And the Midianites live to the east of the Jordan River, and they come over and they steal the crops of the Israelites. So they're starving. So um, they cry out to God. And God's angel, actually the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself, appears to, Midian, uh, to Gideon. Excuse me, And he says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of of Midian and, and Gideon's like, well, have you got the right guy? Why me? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm a nobody. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one. Man. Now, there's the key. I'll be with you. Right? When God is with you, anybody can do anything that God calls you to do. Right? But Gideon is fearful. Gideon is super humble. So he needs a sign. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. All right? I, I just need to know that this is really you. So, the angel says, here's what I want you to do. Go make me dinner. I would like goat. Cook goat for me. Flaming goat over a rock is what I would like. So Gideon goes and he kills a goat. He roasts it. He's got all the trimmings. He brings it out on a platter, sets it on a rock, and the angel says, now, pour the broth, the goat gravy, over the goat. Kind of reminds me of, um, you know, before uh, Elijah does his thing, soak Soak the sacrifice with something wet so there's no question that when the fire appears, it's really God. All right? So the, go the, the goat is on the rock, and it says, The angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff, and uh, the staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the fire, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Pretty good sign, right? I don't know that trick. The vanishing goat, the disappearing angel, I don't know how to do that, right? Now, the, the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself, he disappears, but the voice speaks and says this, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. I think there's a little lesson here. 
I think there's definitely a place today to be troubled, maybe even disgusted with a lot of things going on in society. Okay. But before we decide to be the spokesperson to point out the problems, have you torn down the idols in your own backyard? God says, I'm going to use you, Gideon. But before we take another step, those idols have got to go. And he does it, but he's still timid. He's still fearful, so he does it at night. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And I, I think in, in the arc of the story, the, the, the author is showing us he is humble. Right? I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to obey God, but I'm afraid. I'm humble. Right? So he tears down uh, the altar. Now the next day, look what happens. Then the men of the town said to Joash, that's his dad, that's Gideon's dad, bring out your son that he may die. Right? We're used to going to your farm to have uh, worship with the pagan idols, and they're gone, so bring out Gideon so we can kill him. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? You're going you're gonna to defend the false god Baal? Or will you save him? And then he throws it back at him. Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. You want to kill my son? I say we kill those who are on Baal's side. If he's a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Where was he when his altar was broken down? He, if he's really God, couldn't he defend himself? Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him. Really, he gets re renamed. My, my son, I'm going to rename him Baal. Bring it on. Okay? If Baal is real, go ahead and strike down Gideon. So he becomes uh, Jeroboam. Little, little side lesson here. A lot of little mini lessons we can learn. One is this um, Gideon's fearful, but he still obeys, and his father becomes courageous right who knows parents what effect a small act of obedience might have on your children and children who knows what effect a small act of your obedience might have on your parents as it did in Gideon's dad right now um Next thing, we read about the Holy Spirit. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So 125,000 pagan soldiers have gathered in Israel. Right? But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. So again, 
we can't just say all these stories were of lousy people and God wasn't in it. No, the, the, the Holy Spirit clothes Gideon. Okay? But he's still fearful. He's still not sure that God's really in this, so we do the fleece business. Then Gideon said to God, If you would save Israel by my hands, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool. That's a skin, but it could have been from the goat that he slayed already. Okay, so it's a piece of wool. Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, on the ground. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So God, if this is really you, I'm going to put this fleece down. In the morning, let the ground be dry, but it be wet. Now here's the problem with, with fleeces. With, and a fleece is, is basically saying... God, I'm going to give you a test. If you want me to do A, then you do B. The problem is, after B happens, how do you know it was really God? Maybe wool just retains water longer than ground. Right? How do you really know it's God and not just coincidence. So that's what happens. He uh, thinks about it. And he says, verse 39, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more. And, and the scripture actually uses the word test. So Gideon knows he's testing God. He's asking God to jump through some hoops here. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. Could you reverse it? So tomorrow morning it'll be dry but the ground will be wet. And God complies in this case. Now, what are we to what are we to make of this fleece thing? Let me give you six quick thoughts on fleeces. Okay? Number one, remember this is a historical narrative. It is description, it is not prescription. It is not saying, therefore go and do likewise. It is just a historical report, not a command. That's number one. Number two. We are clearly told not to put God to the test. Remember Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple and Satan says, hey, Psalm 91 says God's going to watch out for you. Go ahead and, as Van Halen said, jump. He promises to uphold you. If you're really his son, he'll take care of you. And what does Jesus say? Yeah, but it also says you're not to put the Lord your God to the test. So point number two, we are clearly not to tell God, hey, you jump through my hoops to communicate with me. Number three, observation about fleeces. Here's a problem. We can interpret fleeces and signs however we want to. All right? 
Um, some of you, you've, you've been around for a while. You've heard my bird stories. I won't tell them again, but you know, I've had weird bird things like owls flying by and looking at me. On an Easter morning, I'm looking out the, my kitchen window and a dove, a dove comes from heaven and lands under the bird feeder. And I'm having a moment with God, like, oh, this is just precious. And a hawk comes flying in, grabs that dove, shakes feathers all over the place, and flies off and eats it. This week, I went running. And on my running path, there was another hawk. This was a huge hawk. Right under, I'm running under the, it's on a telephone wire. And it's watching me. I'm running, and it's watching me. And I stopped and I took a picture of that hawk. And then yesterday, we were awakened early in the morning to what? What was it? Woodpecker. A woodpecker pecking on my shutters. And you know my shutters are the talk of the neighborhood. You know what I think God is saying through all these birds? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> now, I know Christians who would like get all freaked out. Oh, owls. And I just don't look to birds for God to talk, even though I was, I was actually down by the Fox River once looking at the river, and I, I sensed someone, someone coming up behind me. It was a flock of geese, and one, one goose just ran into me. Okay. Um, I think... I think when weird things happen, we can read into them and make them say whatever we want. I, I remember once, this was a long time ago, a family that was already, they had their foot out the door, that they were leaving, they were going to go, but to justify leaving, they said, Pastor, it's time for us to leave. I said, okay. You know. Well, I just want you to know, we laid out seven fleeces and every one of them came true. Now, I don't know what the fleeces are, but you can come up with fleeces. Lord, if the sun comes out this morning, there's one. If Pastor Brian quotes John Piper today, that's two. Right? You can, you can, you can come up with whatever fleeces you want and use them to justify what you want to do anyways. Okay, so... Third, my third point is you can make fleeces. You can interpret them however you want. Number four, the New Testament way to follow God. Never are we told in the New Testament to lay out a fleece. What we're told is to be so saturated in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that we're just in the groove. Now, that doesn't make us infallible. But we're to use the Word of God and the Spirit of God to be our guide, not fleeces. That's number four. Number five, here's a question. How many signs are enough before you know it really is God? You know, when you look at the story of Gideon, there are actually six signs God gives him. The first one is that an angel appears to him. That's a pretty good one, I'd say. Right? Secondly, uh, there's the disappearing dinner. You know, it goes up in flames. Thirdly, there's the disappearing angel. Somebody vanishes in front of your sight. That's good. Then fourthly, there is the first fleece. 
Fifthly, there's the second fleece. And then sixth, sixth thing is Gideon's still afraid, and God says, here's another thing I want you to do. Go sneak down to the camp of the Midianites and listen. And two soldiers, two enemy soldiers are talking, and one says, I had a weird dream last night. In my dream, there was the, the tent of the Midianites, and a big barley loaf of bread came circling in, and it smashed down the tent and destroyed us. And the other one says, that has to be Gideon destroying us. We're going to lose. So God uses a pagan dream, secondhand reported to, to Gideon, as another sign. How many signs do we need before we have enough to think it's God? So my sixth point is this. Fleeces, schmeeces. Okay, that's it. Those are my six points about fleeces. All right, so now... Um, here's another thing. The thinning of the troops. The thinning of the troops. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Notice the motive here is... It's real easy when God does something for us, for us on the front end to go, oh, please, God, please, God, please, God. And then it happens, and then we go, I was pretty awesome in that. So he says, you have too many to win. Now, what are the numbers? 125,000 Midianites, 33,000 Israelites. Now, I'm no math genius, but that's about four to one, I think. Right? They're already way outnumbered. But God says, line them all up, the 33,000, 32,000, excuse me, 32,000, and tell them, if anybody's afraid, go home. So, so Gideon gets them all lined up. He goes, all right, if anybody's afraid... You can go home right now. Now, usually what that does is it builds courage in people. They're like, I'm not afraid. They step forward. Gideon says, if you're afraid and you go home, 22,000 turn and go home, leaving only 10,000. And then God says, you know what? You got too many still. And then there's this weird thing. And if you go to Israel, by the way, Israel trip is on for May. If you want to go to Israel... Talk to Elizabeth. You're in charge of Israel. I've just appointed you, the ambassador to Israel. Okay. And the southern border. You're in charge. All right. So, um, so we, when you go to Israel, you actually go to the spring where, where Gideon did this. And God says, have them drink water. And some of them stick their head in the water and some of them cup water like this. And he separates them and there's only 300 guys who cup water. Now, people have speculated, why do, why do these people get to go? And they say, oh, well, those people wouldn't have stuck their head down. They're more aware of the enemy and they were better soldiers. I, the whole point is we're not putting any confidence in the ability of the Israeli soldiers. So I don't think... 
Uh, the cupping versus the sticking the head means anything other than it's a way to separate out. Other people have different opinions on that. But we're down to 300 guys now. Okay. Now, at this point, Gideon is still afraid. Maybe he's more afraid because he's only got 300 versus 125,000. So God, at this point, lets him overhear the dream being interpreted that, that Israel's going to win. Now, here we go from Gideon being fearful to Gideon being worshipful. When he hears the dream, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And, and again, I don't think it was hypocrisy. I don't think we were going to read delusion. And I think he, he said, Lord, I trust you. You somehow are going to allow us with 300 water-lapping guys to defeat 125,000 Midianites. And he worshiped God. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise for the Lord, not me, the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Okay. Now, here's the plan. He goes, we're going to break into three groups. You do a, you, you do a, a, a post, you do, an out, you do a slant, and I'm going to hit you going across the middle. He goes, we're going to break into three groups, and here's the plan. I'm going to blow my trumpet, you blow your trumpets, smash some jars, and we'll win. That's the plan, okay? But I want you to see that within moments of being worshipful, pride starts to come in to Gideon. And, and, and my, my goal here today is to, to terrify us about our own ability to go from humble to trusting God to I'm all that. Right, so here's, here's what happens. He says, here's the plan. He's in the huddle. He says, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Wait, nothing, nothing has even happened yet. And he's already taking some of the credit. I think we've reached the top, and now we're starting on the way down. When they blew the 300 trump trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. They're stabbing each other, and they're running, and they're fleeing. Okay. Now, Things start to go downhill. Um, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianite. So here's, here's the map. Um, this is, that's the Sea of Galilee up north. And Gideon's from Manasseh, the big yellow tribe. Okay? When he blew the trumpet to gather his own people, People came from the northern tribes, from Asher, Naphtali, and Zebulon. Okay? He didn't 
send for help from Ephraim, the southern tribe. The, uh, the Midianites scatter south and east. So, so Midian sends a, or Gideon sends a guy f- to Ephraim and says, hey, join us. Okay. So here's what happens. And they, the Ephraimites, captured the two princes of Midian, Orb and Zeb. I just picture two twins, Orb and Zeb. They killed Orb at the Rock of Orb. I think they named it after he was killed. And Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Orb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Okay? And when they catch up with Gideon, they go, here's the heads of Orb and Zeb. And they accused him fiercely. Now, what that means is they're upset that, that Gideon called the northern tribes, but they weren't included in the initial battle. So they're yelling at Gideon. And isn't this a satanic thing? Um, just when God calls a people to do something, to evangelize, to, to conquer the world, there's internal fighting that distracts. Right? Now, Gideon, while he's on his downward trend, he's very tactful here. And he said to them, he said to Ephraim, what have I done now in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Basically, he's saying, hey, I'm, uh, yeah, pff, I haven't done anything compared to you. I just blew a trumpet. But you, you got Orb and Zeb heads here. You are awesome. And they're like, oh, okay, thank you. So he, he handles this tactfully. Now, this is the last tactful thing that he does. Okay. Now, um, Gideon is crossing the Jordan, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And just to comment here, God has already sovereignly promised him that he will defeat the Midianites. It's already predestined, but he's exhausted. And just a reminder, predestination does not rule out sweat. Okay, you've heard me talk on that before. We, we won't go uh, beyond that. All right. So now, Gideon goes down here hill quickly. Six things that we observe in him going downhill. Okay. First of all, He's up in Manasseh. He goes down south and crosses the Jordan Valley River. And now, remember, Israel had tribes both on the east and west of the Jordan River. Today it's only on one side. But, but they also owned the land over on the other side of the Jordan River. And there's two towns, Succoth and Penuel. Penuel is where, where Jacob wrestled with the angel, those of you who are in the Genesis study. Okay. So here's, 
what happens? He's, he's, chasing, he's chasing two more kings, and he has to pass through the Israeli towns of Succoth and Penuel. So he said to the men of Succoth, as he's passing through, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Ziba and Zolmana, another two twins, right? The kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zomana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? In other words, we're not going to help you. Until, we, until you actually capture these guys, we're not quite sure who we should side with. So no, we're not going to give you any sandwiches. So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zomna into my hands, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm going to flog you when I come back. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I'm going to break down this tower. Whoa! He has gone from humble, fearful little Gideon to an angry, vengeful person. So I mentioned this podcast the rise and fall of a particular church. Somebody's blogging about this podcast, and they write this. They say, on the pod podcast, the rise and fall of, bleep, a former staff member of this particular church recounts a time when he accompanied the pastor to a preaching engagement in London. After the event, a few people were waiting outside to get the pastor's autograph. Afterwards, as they drove away in a taxi, colleagues expressed amazement that a pastor would get this kind of response. In reply, the pastor says, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I'm kind of a big deal. His colleague laughed, thinking he was ironically quoting the film Anchorman. But then he realized the pastor was being totally serious, and he thought, man, are we in trouble. Right? By the way, last night I'm flipping around the channels. Guess what was on? Anchorman. You know what I think I was trying to say? Absolutely nothing. Right. That Anchorman's on probably at any given time, right? Um, I think the 300 at this point should have said, man, are we in trouble. Our leader's gone selfish at this point. So now what happens? He, gets, he, kills, or he doesn't kill them. He captures these two kings. And he took the elders of the city of, of Succoth. And he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them. And, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. He flogs them. Right? And he goes to Penuel. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Whoa, things just got ugly. So first we've got, you know, number one, Gideon saying, shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Number two, he's murdering his own Israelites who don't 
agree with him. Number three, it's time to execute these two kings. And he says to his son, who's next to him, rise and kill them. So he's, he's just exercising justice here. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. I'm not into this killing, Dad. Okay. Then Ziba and Zomana said to, to Gideon, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. He's questioning Gideon's manhood. If you're a real man, you'd do it yourself. And Gideon gets full of anger and Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zulma. There's military justice, and then there's personal vengeance. He kills some more people out of vengeance. Right? Now, after the victory, okay, what happens is the people of Israel go to Gideon, and they say, will you be our king? Now, Gideon says, no, God has not authorized there to be a king in Israel. So, no. Okay. But here's what you can do for me. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from the spoil. So they collected all the, uh, all the pagans had earrings. Right? And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earring of the spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 40 pounds of gold. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orphrah. Okay, just like good old times. You know, Dad used to have Baal and Asherah. Now I'm going to put this this ephod, which is a, uh, kind of like what the priest would wear, but, but basically it's an idol. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Just like good old times, we have the local idol in our town. So his, his fourth downfall is he, he makes an idol. And it gets worse. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Polygamy. Okay? Now not only is this polygamy... He said, I'm not going to be a king, but he's doing what kings do. He gathers a harem. And not only does he have all these wives in his harem, but he has a little Canaanite girlfriend on the side. And his concubine, it's his girlfriend, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Anybody know what Abimelech means? I don't know why you would. It means I'm the son of the king. I'm going to name, I don't want to be king, but I'm going to name my son son of the king. Got my harem, got my idol. 
I think he's living pretty high on the hog. Right? And then he dies. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father. And I won't go into the, the details, but here's what happens. Abimelech, his illegitimate son, says, I want to be king. And he murders 69 of his 70 brothers. And then he makes a deal. Make me king. And there's a battle. And he's close to another tower. And a woman up in the tower drops a millstone boom, on his head. It cracks his skull. And as he's dying, his dying words are, Stab me. I don't want to die in humiliation having a woman kill me. So his sword bearer stabs him. And he dies. So ends the life and the family of Gideon. Okay. Now, what, how do we apply this to our day and age and these churches that have fallen and so forth? Well, first, I don't doubt that God raised up many churches by the power of his Holy Spirit to do great things. I don't doubt that there was true worship involved and true salvation going on. But here's the lesson. It doesn't take long for even the most timid Christian, the most God-dependent Christian, to start to see the power of God work and start to think, I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty important. I'm pretty hot stuff. And I'm entitled. I deserve to sign autographs. I deserve to be pretty important. I deserve adoration. I deserve power. I deserve luxury. And pretty soon, the growth of the ministry itself becomes an idol that justifies the arrogant, abusive behavior and even sexual immorality in a lot of these cases. Now, have I ever mentioned a guy named Piper? There's a fleece. Somebody's fleece thing just went off. All right. um, many, many moons ago, John Piper wrote an article called, and it was written to pastors, Brothers, we're not professionals. Brothers, we are not professionals. And in it, and it became a book, in it he warns against what he calls the professionalization of the ministry. There's a danger in pastors and ministry leaders and school teachers and authors in the Christian world of becoming professional. You know, well-respected professionals like other people with master's degrees and doctorates. We're not here to serve. We're here to be served. The Corinthians had fallen in to kind of a health, wealth, importance gospel. 
if you read 1 Corinthians, they themselves wanted to be, and they wanted their leaders to be well-respected, knowledgeable, well-trained orators who weren't embarrassing, but who would demand respect from the culture. And let me, let me conclude with this. Paul sarcastically, in a paragraph in 1 Corinthians, puts them in their place. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. You've become Gideons. And would that you did reign, I really wish you were, important, so that we, you know, me and Timothy and Titus, we might share the rule with you. Oh, can we get in on your glory? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles. So now you're the kings, but let me tell you about the apostles. I, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. So he's talking about here when one nation conquers another nation and they capture some soldiers and they have a parade coming back to their city and dragged by chains are the defeated soldiers and they're sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and men. That's us. That's how I view myself, he says. I'm being dragged by a chain in front of the world. I'm not a king like you guys. For we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. People, they're impressed with the letters by your name. We are weak, but you are strong. You guys are important. You are held in honor, we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray. Oh Lord, spare us from thinking we're all that. Lord, may we, as whether we're in Christian ministry or lead a Bible study or teach a Sunday school class or sing or teach at college or write a book or do anything in the name of Christ, may we not use it as an opportunity to say for the Lord and for Gideon. Remind us that as Paul said, we're the scum of the earth. We are servants. We are not kings. Remind us that Jesus, you humbled yourself even though being in very nature God, you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself a servant. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.